Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with the Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Sharon Olds. There is a shorter, produced version of this wherever you like to listen. Good morning and welcome to Poetry and On Being at the Geraldine R. Dodge Poetry Festival. So we're delighted to have uh, Krista Tippett and Sharon Olds with us this morning to bring uh, On Being here to the Dodge Festival. I've been listening to the On Being podcasts for years, and for 15 years or more, Krista Tippett has been asking essential questions on being human uh, to people from all <laughs> walks of life, from Zen monks to astrophysicists. And uh, poets are on that list, and they've started their own poetry project on their website, which you should visit. Uh, Sharon Olds uh, is perhaps one of, if not the most, uh, singular, identifiable, recognizable voices um, to have emerged in my lifetime in poetry. And um, I think you're in for a fascinating conversation, which you get to eavesdrop on. Um, so this is a privilege for all of us. Please help me welcome Sharon Olds and Krista Tippett. <laughs> this is a, a lively Sunday morning crowd. Um, which leads right into where I want to start, which is that you, you speak often about... Um, having had a hellfire and brimstone Calvinist upbringing, and then your first book was called Satan Says, so I think that tells us where you went with that. But I, but, but I wonder how, um, you know, how you would start to describe the religious and spiritual background of your childhood um, as it appears to you now, because I think, like many things in childhood, what we see changes as we look back at it across time. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me here. Um, well, I would say that even before I was born, I was a pagan dancer, I would say. <laughs> I was upside down, and I was, I was engaged in rhythm. I don't remember this, but it just seems true that the heartbeat and the breath and the borborygmy, uh, the sounds of this digestion. So I was gradually hearing that. And then I was upside down and moving around. And so I think all my childhood I was a pagan underneath the the burden of the particularly negative vision of uh, Christianity that, that I was um, in the house of. So I think that was very helpful for me. Hmm. My senses were super pleasurable to me, and, and there was so much 
gorgeous beauty um, in the garden and, you know, small garden and um, a, uh, a brick barbecue, homemade, in which I could bake pies with lattice crusts, mm. braided lattice crusts made of dirt. Um, so there was so much that was beautiful and good and music. And then I just tended to dance around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, and also you were named from the, uh, after the Rose of Sharon in mm. the Song of Solomon. That's such an interesting place to get your name from. It's lovely. I know, especially if I tell you the story of it, which is until I was born, my name was Timothy. <laughs> <laughs> and it was intended that I be a Timothy. Uh, they kept mothers in San Francisco in those war years in the hospital for like a week. Mm-hmm. And after a week, they wanted to take me home. But the hospital said, you can't take home a child without a name. That seems like a good idea, really. Uh, personalize that little creature. And they didn't have a name. And Someone handed my father a Bible, and he shut his eyes, opened it up, and pointed (laughs) to the Song of Solomon. Yeah, you could have been Ezekiel. I could have been Hepzibichabah. (laughs) I would have liked that. No, I'm so grateful. I mean, how lucky. Yeah, Yeah, a lucky pagan. That's lovely. Uh, Yeah, you know, you talk about that, that you that you danced, that you always danced around. And actually, I don't know, maybe many or most of us were dancing in the womb. And, and we dance around as children, but most of us, I think, stop at some point. And it seems like you didn't really ever get that message. Well, I was an exhibitionist, and, uh, but I wasn't dancing for others. In the garden, I knew the fairies were there. I was so big and clumsy compared to them that I didn't. I wasn't dancing for them. I was dancing to be with them and to honor the wind and the shapes of the flowers. Mm. Rock and roll when I was fourteen was very copy each other, so the it kept changing. It wasn't doing the same thing. It was communication. It was sexual communication at 14. Oh, my. And so with the fairies, of course, they were not sexual. They were girls, but they were so strict and witty that I didn't think of them as sexual or of myself. Hmm. I was just, I wanted to communicate. And I, I don't know when I got the message that I was odd, but I sure got it. And it kind of, I mean, I tried to be normal Mm. almost all my life. But now I figure we're all normal enough. Each of us is normal. Each of us is weird. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. that's my feeling now. Yeah, Yeah, I think a nice thing about growing older is that you just get more comfortable with that altogether in yourself and in others. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Life for the young is so hard. It's so hard. And it 
unless, you know, there are challenges that can come along that can make an old person's life extremely hard or a middle-aged person. But if we are lucky, then getting older makes it easier. Mm -hmm. I, that's my opinion. Mm -hmm. I know nothing. That's just my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, so I made a joke here yesterday, which um, I felt a little bad about afterwards, because we were talking about... Um, what you can and can't say on public radio. Oh, because yes. this is a public radio show as much as a podcast. And you'd be surprised at what you can't say on public radio. And it's a very prudish place. Um, and uh, so I was actually, when I was uh, reading some of your poetry, I think I went to the wrong place first just for this alarm bell yeah, yeah. system. Yeah. I thought, I th and we're not going to be able to read a whole poem without getting bleeped. <laughs> But, um, so I'm just going to say that, but actually I'm not really very worried about it now that I've really gone much more through this. Um, and also it doesn't matter. Like, I mean, the worst thing that happens is you get bleeped or edited. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and I, th but I think also what I, re what I realized as I got very deeply into you is that, um, you know, you... There was something I read um, that the, with the Guardian wrote a piece about you after you became the first American woman to win the T.S. Eliot Prize for Poetry. Mm -hmm. And in there was the story of the reaction you got when you first submitted your work to a magazine in the early 1970s mm. when they told you, uh, could, do you know which, which one, that you, do you recall that story? Um, yes. Do you want to tell what sure, the response sure. was? Um. I would say, yes, I, I was submitting poems in 75, 6, 7, 8, and one magazine wrote back. I also had hate mail that was violent, that was shocking. I was never scared. I didn't think they were going to do what they said they wanted to do to me, but it was not something I had expected. Um, but that particular note said, if you wish to write about uh, your children, may we suggest the Ladies Home Journal. We are a literary magazine. <laughs> it wasn't that atypical of, you know, back in the 70s. Yeah, you write as a woman. You don't merely write about being a woman, but even if you did, you know, what this all, I mean, what, what it is to be a woman is such a robust and essential elemental variation on the theme of what it is to be human, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it shouldn't be seen as anything off to the side. <laughs> um, yeah, the, and so, um, I guess when I said I was, when I was joking, it was like, you know, naming female body parts, but it's, but it's also just about the entire experience, which does very much come out of our embodiment uh, as women. And it seems to me that you just decided uh, against a grain that that was interesting and important to you, and it was interesting and important to write about, to give voice to. Yes, I didn't decide, it just was so interesting to me. And 
loving dance and sexuality and, I mean, I think almost every poem of mine that's a sexual poem is a sexual love poem. I don't think I've written much in, in the area. Is there such a thing as the area of pure sex? Um, I, I haven't gone there. Um, but um, are we live? We're not live. We're, we're, well, we're, we're, we're not live. live. We Ooh, will. We're live. We are taping. Mm. Yeah. Yes, I didn't decide... I just wrote about the things that interested me the most. A poem would come to me, and I would start writing it. And we know that our writing is better when we sort of follow the poem. And so I just um, wrote what came out of my pen, out of my arm, connected to my soul and mind and body. And the fact that it hadn't been done much was like you know, a big tip when you're waiting table at a restaurant. It was like, oh, it was like, I don't know, it was exciting yeah. to be writing maybe the first poem about a diaphragm. I, I didn't know that until someone told me that. So for, that no one had ever in history written about a, di- a poem about a diaphragm before. Someone said that to me. Yeah. So you probably, I think you probably have a lot of firsts in there. I, I like that. I think maybe as a second child and as a second class citizen and as someone who has struggled with lack of confidence, conscious lack of confidence all my life, um, but obviously I had some unconscious confidence that yes. let me write the poems and lets me sit here and behave as I think someone with the good fortune of sitting here should behave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not, also it's the fourth day of Dodge and we're, I love you and you love me and we're a big family, so <laughs> here we are. <laughs> I mean, we're going to just dive really deep into that. I, I do, though, want to note before we before we do that that you know you don't you don't. I, th- I feel like there's something reductive. There's something reductive about the way people talk about writing as a woman, about the experience of being a woman, and there's also something reductive. People people act like that's all you do, and in fact, that's not the theme of every poem. I mean, when I look at the Dead and the Living, um, which I think was one of the books that made your name as a poet. You know, the, there, 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 there's a poem about public uh, dead and living, and, and you've got the Tulsa race riots in there, and China, and kind of the world of death and life that comes into our living rooms. Um, and there's one short poem, and I, I just might ask you to read this just as a taste of that. Um, uh, this was maybe you could say what you were, what you were writing about there. Thank you. Yeah. <gasps> oh. <laughs> right. My, the news came to me through newspaper photographs. I didn't read the newspaper. It m- made me too, too sad to write. Sometimes you know. Um, Rhodesia, 1978. So I would have seen this picture in the New York Times, probably. And um, my kids then would have been 
six and nine. Yeah, it's called The Issues. Rhodesia, 1978. Just don't tell me about the issues. I can see the pale spider belly head of the newborn who lies on the lawn, the web of veins at the surface of her scalp, her skin gray and gleaming, the clean line of the bayonet down the center of her chest. I see her mother's face beaten and beaten into the shape of a plant, a cactus with gray spines and broad, dark maroon blooms. I see her arms stretched out across her baby, wrist resting heavily still across the tiny ribs. Don't speak to me about politics. I've got eyes, man. And what I, what I see this time, I haven't read that poem for 20 or 30 years, yeah. but what I see is it's a love poem. It's, uh, it's really about the tenderness and the unspeakable, incomprehensible uh, feelings of, of that mother while she was still alive. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I, do, I do think... Um, when you become a mother, you—I mean, I—it's—I—it's—it's it's, it's true for me that I—I I do see so much of what comes as a news story through. I—I I imagine. I mean, when I see, you know, refugees on the road, I imagine having a baby and not having diapers and not knowing how you're going to feed your children and that exhaustion that is there, even when you're not on the road and. You know, there's something about putting your, you put yourself into that, that situation. Well, yes, that happens to me all my life. It was partly when I danced in the garden, I looked at the flower and I just wanted to be the flower. I had one of those negative capability kind of minds. I have felt in the last few months especially when I heard the news about that the potential kind of death of the earth, um, which will keep living in some form or another, but maybe uh, the death of our species, that all that we have been doing just to be comfortable and drive around and stuff is uh, uh, going to be fatal much sooner than we thought. I, I have some insane hope. I can't live with, I, first of all, I can't really imagine it. And when I do, it's so horrible. You know, I look down 17 stories. I live in university housing, NYU housing, and I look down and imagine the water. Um, and I hope I have wine in the house when that happens, a lot of Chardonnay. Um, mm. So, but I have a feeling that there are actions available to me uh, that I perhaps haven't seen yet or don't know the shape of them or that actions available to each of us together and singularly 
So I'm just so mad and so determined. I'm not hopeful, but I'm determined and pissed off. Pissed off. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if that gets bleeped or not, but... So, um, in this this book as well... um, because yeah, it's the it's the dead and the living, and I, I think you pick up on something that also runs all the way through your work, which is the love that we have for our children and the intimacy that that particular intimacy mm. is there. There's one um, short poem that I I just found it captures so much in so few words, which is of course what poetry does, right? Um, exclusive. <laughs> Oh, yeah. 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 So this book came out in 84. So the poem would have been written maybe two years before then. So maybe 10 years old, 12 years old. Exclusive for my daughter. I lie on the beach watching you as you lie on the beach, memorizing you against the time when you will not be with me. Your empurpled lips, swollen in the sun and smooth as the inner lips of a shell. Your biscuit gold skin glazed and faintly pitted like the surface of a biscuit the serious knotted twine of your hair. I have loved you instead of anyone else, loved you as a way of loving no one else, every separate grain of your body building the God as you were built within me, a sealed world. What if from your lips I had learned the love of other lips? From your starred, gummed lashes, the love of other lashes. From your shut, quivering eyes, the love of other eyes. From your body, the bodies. From your life, the lives. Today, I see it is there to be learned from you, to love what I do not own. Yeah, to love what I do not own. Yeah. I changed it while I read it. On the page it says, like a God, as I had built you within me, and I said, as you were built within me. Mm -hmm. And the next time that's about to reprint, they'll send me the book and ask, do you have any changes? (laughs) Oh, my God. So, um, yeah, little things like that. I didn't do it. It happened mm. in me. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, that uh, it's interesting that the that especially fierce kind of love <laughs> also has this from the very beginning this um, certainty that the flourishing of that life will mean separation from us. That we don't own that love. I mean, we don't ever own any love, but we right. we have that we have that illusion with other loves, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Eileen Miles was saying yesterday on a panel something about 
that she discovered that what she loved best was the truth. And we feel that in her amazing work. So in a way, that's right. The separation eventually, the whole point, yeah. you know, is was <laughs> to increase our population and spread out and cover the earth. Mm. Mm. Um. And I, I, um, and I want to, I want to move through a few of your books, but um, there's something also in uh, in this book about your son, and um, I'm thinking a lot right now about being the mother of a son. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if you would read that. There's, there's actually, there's one in this. Um, Sixty-eight. Yeah, this is a, I love this. Um, and then there's my son, the man. Here, I'll take this. Yeah. Oh, so these, these two, I feel, and then maybe let's talk about that and how that kind of, what that, this poetry surfaces for this conversation. Okay. So you'd like me to... Read these two. I think so. Yes, thank if you, you. If you're all right, if that sounds good. I am good. so all right. <laughs> okay. This is like a dream of heaven. <laughs> and you make a, such an excellent God, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> right. Son, coming home from the women-only bar... I go into my son's room. He sleeps, fine freckled face thrown back, the scarlet lining of his mouth shadowy and fragrant, his small teeth glowing dull and milky in the dark, opal eyelids quivering like insect wings, his hands closed in the middle of the night. Let there be enough room for this life. The head, lips, throat, wrists, hips, penis, knees, feet. Let no part go unpraised. Into any new world we enter, let us take this man. Mm -hmm. That was 96. Thank you. <laughs> My son, the man. Suddenly his shoulders get a lot wider, the way Houdini would expand his body while people were putting him in chains. It seems no time since I would help him put on his sleeper, guide his calves into the shadowy interior, zip him up and toss him up and catch his weight. I cannot imagine him no longer a child, and I know I must get ready, ready. I cannot imagine him no longer a child, and I know I must get ready, get over my fear of men. Now my son is going to be one. This was not what I had in mind when he pressed up through me like a sealed trunk through the ice of the Hudson, snapped the padlock, unsnaked the chains, appeared in my arms. Now he looks at me, 
the way Houdini studied a box to learn the way out, then smiled and let himself be manacled. Hmm. Now, if I was writing that poem now, I've learned so much since I wrote that poem, I would not be able to have chains in a poem without referring to the atrocious history of our country and without referring to my son's good fortune in mm. blending in by being white and being a wasp and, and, and all of that. So I also didn't realize that my kids would grow up to be grown-ups like me and my former husband, imperfect people. I mean, my kids are wonderful people. And, but, you know, no person is perfect. Somehow a little kid can seem yeah. so perfect. Yeah. And then yeah. you're going to do your, you're not going to make the mistakes your parents made. But I didn't realize how many other mistakes were available. That is to be so made. true. <laughs> so true. Mm. <laughs> I know, isn't it? It's so odd that we can uh, we can we can uh, endeavor to do it so much better to parent so much better than we were parented, and and objectively, you know, you could make a case that, that yeah. many of us do, and yet what we are raising are humans, yeah, and yeah. they end up having flaws and neuroses and their issues, and that's also part of how they become who they are and how they yeah. Yes. Um, are you thinking these days about um, being the mother of a son and, and the men in our lives? And Well, I'm certainly thinking about men. I'm I, between no, boyfriends, right. so I'm <laughs> always thinking about men. Um, uh, what? Well, like this, well, like this line. This may just be me. We won't dwell here, but this line... Into any world we enter, let us take this man. Right, and the thing about being afraid of men, uh, I was raised to be afraid of men. I was mm -hmm. raised to not feel safe if I was the only person on the block, but, and then there was also a man, any, any man, or boys, especially more than one. Um, it just was a time when uh, many males felt that very little respect for females and right. and uh, anger of desire. And um, when I was 13, my classmate was kidnapped and raped and murdered in Berkeley, mm. California. Mm. And, and that, of course, uh, showed us all a, you know, a little bit uh, from the outside of that family um, what was possible mm -hmm. and right and being afraid of men like afraid they'll think I'm ugly and you know just all kinds of fears I was in a uh, a wonderful marriage and so I wasn't afraid of my former husband mm -hmm. and I probably was a little bit of a sexist as a parent um, but not in the way you'd think, but more like thinking boys needed more encouragement, maybe, because mm, yeah. it was harder for them to learn all that um, fine motor stuff, and, and even some of the 
large motor stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, but we, you know, we talked about everything, uh, my kids and I. So I, I, I've, I, I think I did my best. Mm-hmm. I think that was the best I could do. I, yeah. I, I guess what I'm, my, my, uh, just what's on my heart now is that um, I feel like whatever, there's so much work, there's so much unfinished work we have to do <laughs> as women and for women and, and in terms of gender. And yet I also think if we, that, that we have to do it together with men. And, um, right? Mm-hmm. And when it was to let, let men come, you know, there's something about that line, again, like, uh, take them with us. Um, anyway, that's, mm. and, as a, and because also there are good men in our lives, right? Oh, yes. And, Absolutely. Yeah. So, a lot I, of them are here at this conference. And a lot of them are here. <laughs> Poetry reading men. Um, okay. Um, it's so interesting to me that, so here we've had a flavor of the depth and breadth and profundity of, of what you are writing about and the voice you're writing in. And still, you know, you've had these critics all along the way who, um, there was this piece by Tony Hoagland, who, who oh, is a man, Oh, my, right? my, yeah, which my is, knight in armor. Right. He and hasn't always been a knight in armor to everyone, but at that point that he wrote this, like, defense of me. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> and he's a man. Um, and he wrote yes. about people who write about you, men usually, saying, um, you know, Olds may someday become the laureate of the bedroom, but for all her radical pretense, she's a homely red book moralist, or somebody else writing, her poems are written directly out of the trivia of her life. The trivia of her life. He called me homely in print? Somebody did, I'm sorry. I, yeah. Well, uh, I certainly felt homely, just, as so many women do, you know, most of my life, so. It just reflects back on him. Um, oh. You know, it only that the, there is no abstraction and no surprise, only the videotape of life played back at full volume. I mean, what is poetry for? What are words for <laughs> if not to express this? Right? Was the that in APR? I don't know where it was. Oh. It was what Tony Hope. Okay, I love his poems. Uh, I don't always agree with his politics, but uh, he's a treasure in the poetry family. Um, uh, what I say about revision in my work is that I, when I revise a poem, I write this much and type up this much, and after I type up this much, then I revise this much, and then this much is seen in the world. I'm the kind of writer who writes a lot of bad poems. It's just a kind of writer. It's not a bad thing. Um, And I used to say that in revision, I would try to take out a third of the adjectives and a fourth of the (laughs) self-pity. So the poem would still have something to hold it together. And um, so I, I don't know. When I've had criticism that seemed valid and that was about things that I was worried about, Mm -hmm. I had a great conversation with Phil Levine about my line endings in the first lines of my poems. He suggested to put my wonky endings to wait until we'd had the first four lines with church hymn rhythms. As Phil said, you know, Sharon, not everyone grew up in that church of yours. 
So I started doing that. I like to establish the, the, the foursome and then start wonking it up. And um, so I pay attention. And I, I, I really appreciate um, criticism that I can use. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, here's something. I think this was him, Tony Hoagland, kind of re- responding to, what, to this criticism and saying, isn't one job of the artist to imagine his way, his way, vividly into the unfashionable nooks and crannies of experience, the central meanings of the real. Tony didn't call me homely. That was no, someone no, no, else. No, 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 it was somebody else. <sighs> oh, he was making fun of somebody else. Oh, I'm so glad. No, absolutely. He said wonderful things about you. He I, got it. He, w- he oh. saw the truth. Hi, Tony. Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, you, you won the Pulitzer for Stag Sleep. Um, uh, which was about the end of your marriage. And um, I, I don't know, I'm sure other poetry has been written about divorce, but I, but I, so I don't know if this was a world first, but I do feel like the way you, I don't know, the, you fulsomely wrote <laughs> about the experience um, from many different places along the spectrum of that experience. And... Um, and I think the fact that you, that you loved and honored the marriage that was ending also mm. gave a certain character mm. to, to the poetry. I wonder if, just if, um, if I asked, is there one poem in that book, Stag's Leap, that you would like to read that, that you now uh, appreciate? Mm. I mean, I had a few that I mentioned, mm. that I noted, but I, I, I really wonder what, what you now appreciate there at this remove? Um, There's one I read often that I read to the high school kids because I realized it's a good poem for high high school kids. It's it's called Known to be Left. And it's early on, yeah, it's page 18. I wrote an awful lot of poems in the maybe four years in which this book was written, most of them in the first year. What did I say? Uh, 18. 18. Thank you. And um, it's not, it doesn't always seem to be in our hands how open we can be in our poems and how we can tell a truth that we is a little bit under the, the surface of the truth. Known to be left. If I pass a mirror, I turn away. I do not want to look at her, and she does not want to be seen. Sometimes I don't see exactly how to go on doing this. Often, when I feel that way, within a few minutes I am crying, remembering his body or an area of it, his backside often, a part of him just right now to think of, luscious, not too detailed, and his back turned to me. After tears, the chest is less sore, as if some goddess of humanness within us has caressed us with a gush of tenderness. I guess that's how people go on, without knowing how. I am so ashamed before my friends, to be known to be left, 
by the one who supposedly knew me best. Each hour is a room of shame, and I am swimming, swimming, holding my head up, smiling, joking, ashamed, ashamed. Like being naked with the clothed, or being a child, having to try to behave while hating the terms of your life. In me now, there's a being of sheer hate, like an angel of hate. On the badminton lawn, she got her one shot, pure as an arrow, while through the eyelets of my blouse, the no bit the flesh no one seems now to care to touch. In the mirror, the torso looks like a pinup hives martyr, or a cream pitcher speckled with henbit and pussy paws, full of the milk of human kindness and unkindness, and no one is lining up to drink. But look, I am starting to give him up. I believe he is not coming back. Something has died inside me, believing that, like the death of a crone in one twin bed as a child is born in the other. Have faith, old heart, what is living anyway but dying? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You've said that... um, that people is it was uh, people were uncom- uncomfortable with you being what did you say you're being a divorce sherry that telling that? that telling people about it you felt like typhoid mary when you were going through oh, that oh oh i was in a crowd of long marriages uh, with children kind of at the center of all of our marriages and yeah i felt like i had harmed something uh, you know uh, of course I hadn't actually harmed anything mm-hmm. or anyone. It was 50-50, and it, it turns out to have been a very good thing for my life as well as his. So people change over the course of 32 years together, and I, I feel now that it was the right thing, I, and I'm not ashamed in front of my friends. And I've had three extraordinary relationships uh, during that time. And I know things and I've felt things uh, that I never would have known or uh, felt if uh, that hadn't happened. So, yes, but in the beginning I did. There's a poem about a long drive with an old friend friend, uh, wherein I, I confessed to him the question that was the worst thing. It's called the worst thing. I confessed to him that the worst thing was, and then I just started boo-hooing, I could hardly talk, was what if I had harmed love? Love, like some ideal, some... Mm. (gasps) I really feared that. And then he calmed that fear, and then it was easier. Um, your, your newest book, your, your 2016 book is, um, Odes, and this is the one that has lots of words in it that we can't say on public radio. 
and I'm going to say a few of them right here, and we have to, we'll probably have to cut it out. It includes the ode to the hymen, ode to the clitoris, ode to the penis, ode to the condom, ode to the tampon, lots of others. Ode of withered cleavage, <laughs> celibate's ode to balls. We can say balls on public radio. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> um, I, I'm not going to ask you to read the ode to the penis because most of it would get, but I'm, I want to read a little bit of it because it's fabulous. I mean, in this, this section, it starts with someone told me that what I write about men is objectifying. And then it ends, I like you, not as an object, but a subject, a prime mover, working theory of plumbing and ecstasy, a boy's pride and anxiety, windsock of Zephyr and Gale, Half of the equation of creation. It's great. Mm. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, you wrote this poem recently, in, which was published in The New Yorker. I don't think it's been printed. Uh, no Makeup? Yeah. Yeah, would you read this one? Sure. And I want to tell you. Do you have it? I do. Oh, I printed it out. I, um, I was looking... I was looking around actually this morning. I had it already um, in in my preparation, but I and I read it in the New Yorker when it came out, and it was fun. Um, and then um, I was looking around uh, this morning because I wanted to print it out for you, and I and I came across this young woman, and that I write her, Caitlin Skinner, who has a YouTube channel. And she's a, a military officer, and and um, her fir- and and she's young and just you know just lovely, smart, you know, mm. and a very appealing human. Mm. And the first, and she's just started doing this. And the first, the first piece she'd done on her YouTube channel is is her. She's in her combat fatigues, and she's oh. talking about what she's learned as a leader oh. and as a mentor. And her second feed is her just. Not in her combat fatigues this time, reading this poem. <laughs> no makeup. <laughs> it was beautiful. So, anyway, I want you to wow. read it for us, but imagine that too. Caitlin? Caitlin Skinner. Skinner. S K I N N A R. Officer Skinner. Yeah. Thank you, thank yeah. you. No makeup. Maybe one reason I do not wear makeup is to scare people. If they're close enough, they can see something is different with me, something unnerving, as if I have no features. I am embryonic, pre-eyebrows, pre-eyelids, pre-mouth. I am like a water bear talking to them, or an amniotic traveler, a vitreous floater on their own eyeball, human ectoplasm risen on its hind legs to discourse with them. And such a white, white girl, such a sickly toadstool, so pale, a visage of fog, a fizz of mist above a graveyard, no magenta roses, no floral tribute, no goddess, no grown-up woman, no acknowledgement of the drama of secondary sexual characteristics, just the gray matter of spirit talking, the thin features of a gray girl in a gray graveyard, granite, ash, chalk, dust. I tried the paint, but I could feel it on my skin. 
I could hardly move under the mask of my desire to be seen as attractive in the female way of 1957, and I could not speak. And when the makeup came off, I felt actual as a small mammal in the woods with a speaking countenance or a basic primate having all the expressions that evolved in us to communicate. If my teenage acne had left scars, if my skin were rough instead of soft, I probably couldn't afford to hate makeup or to fear so much the beauty salon or the very idea of beauty ship. And my mother was beautiful. Did I say this? In my small eyes and my smooth, withered skin, you can see my heart. You can read my naked lips. No, I grew up in um, in a small town in Oklahoma in the 1960s and 70s, and um, I actually knew it was a real makeup culture. I, I mean, I actually knew people, women, young brides, who got up at 5:30 in the morning Aww. for an, an hour before their husband Aww. to curl their hair and put on their Aww. makeup. Mm-hmm. I, I doubt that that lasted very long into the marriage, but. <laughs> Yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah. I. I. Uh, I don't know. So. I, so. I. Like. Again. I see somebody saying that this is trivial, but actually, it's a huge part of the lives of women. This makeup, no makeup. How much? How dramatic it is. If at some point you start, you decide to wear less. Um, and we go through phases mm-hmm. historically, mm-hmm. and so it was a, a great shock to me to see. 14-year-olds with very, very classy, very obvious and uh, kind of gorgeous but shocking. They had been children a couple of years before. So uh, I think at first I thought, oh, we're going back to uh, the 50s. Uh, women's, uh, the, the strides that we've made and the advances that we have made are were like that, and now they're going to be a, a, there's going to be a dip. But I think the advances we've made are real and mm-hmm. are not going to disappear, and they are needed uh, in different ways all over the earth. Um, so I've learned, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not shocked anymore. And it's luck. Luxurious for me, you know, when I cry at the movies to just be able to oh, yeah. wipe my eyes. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I mainly I just couldn't function. Whatever way any of us, men, women, gay, straight, can function best, can let out of our mouths what we really mean, what we think and feel, then we should go for that style, whatever it is, I think. Sometimes I feel like younger women, and I'm sure this is a generalization that doesn't apply to everybody, but I feel like some of them, I mean, I think about my own daughter, I think they wear makeup because it pleases them. That's a good I, I, reason. I don't feel like it's all about the externals, about pleasing right. others. Right. And so that's liberation. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Don't you also envy how they don't care if anybody can see their bra strap showing? 
I think that's so cool. I am so, I know. But, I mean, this is one of these things. Growing up a few decades ago. Yeah. Sorry, I you've never said that in a <laughs> See what you're inspiring in me. Well, I am so in agreement, and what I love is that I don't have to worry anymore. Of course, there are certainly people who think that at my age one shouldn't have a brass, bra, bra strap showing. Uh, but then it's also an excuse to get bras with pretty, pretty it is. straps. Uh, I think these, these girls who are 15 and, uh, or 25 now their bra straps are going to show. And they're going to live to be 115, so that will be a whole new world. Oh. <laughs> it's going to be a tough world for them when they're heading, when they're well, getting close yeah. to 100. Well, there's, yeah. But we believe in you, young people, and we love you. Yes. And we thank you. Yeah. I would like for us to just hear some more poems um, before we end from uh, from ode, uh, odes, um, and I pulled out a few. I wonder if you might want to read the Unmatching Legs ode. Sure. Because I think that also is part of the story of like where you are and yeah. and with your dancing and mm. and 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 just that yeah. that mm. piece of drama in your life right now mm. as your life is progressing. I have realized that this book came about as a book of odes. I was traveling with my uh, then boyfriend, and a book of Neruda's just about fell off a shelf in an old used bookstore, and, and it fell on him, and he said, here are poems, this, this is a book of poems. And, uh, and um, I read some of them, Ode to Salt, Ode to the Table, Ode to a Dog, and didn't think of copying them. They were so entire. And it was Spanish-English, and I have enough Latin and Italian that I could actually understand with the facing page. But then um, later, weeks later, a week later, I thought, Odes to Common Things, and so... The Tampon is the first ode of this series that I wrote. And then it was also good to be able to write about sexuality without writing specific love poems to this man who would not have appreciated those poems going out into the world. Mm -hmm. I wrote them, and I have them, and I will put them into a book for him, a book of his. Mm -hmm. But... um, That was one reason that I have some abstractions in this book. Unmatching Legs Ode. I have to give a shout out to Kwame Davis, Dawes, Kwame Dawes. Yo, Kwame. Who accepted this poem for publication, which is just so thrilling, in the Prairie Schooner. Unmatching Legs Ode. I don't know why I am fairly cheerful about my unmatching legs. I am not cheerful about my foot soles, which were like two brains reading the ground and now have less than half their nerves. They are the numbskulls to whom I trust my balance, their surfaces crinkled tinfoil made of rubber. But when I lie on the floor on my back and look up 
at my lower limbs, those tapered feelers. I like them. Even though you cannot tell if the left is withered or the right fat, the right is swollen. When I was a new matron, I thought that the blue-green line down my inner calf, the great saphenous vein, was a Nile beauty mark. And the way it rose when I was carrying my first young, there was something cool in how it fit between the ledges of the gastrocnemius and soleus, like a snake between two strata of rock. So when I see the leg's mass, I am almost proud of it, that it could fit in it one and a half of its fellow. And the skinny leg, the original one, how can it be that I like the healed gouge on it from the edge of the porch stair when I fell upwards or the one from the corner fang of his truck door? They hold the places I've been. They are like passport stamps from his kingdom. I have always liked my legs. The double stem which lifts the big odd flower of me up and up. It's as if I fell in love with them when they and I began to learn to walk together. The two of them were best friends who could press against each other and feel the love at the top of the stalks. And they were twins, not identical, but mirror twins. Loving the other was loving the self. They were ecstatics. They were the thyrsus and the stylus, the healthy narcissus. I'm sad they will rot. I wish our bodies could leave us when they are done with us, leave our spirits here, and walk away. Would you like to tell us anything else about your legs? I like looking up muscles and nerves and finding out their names. I like weird words. I had a political struggle with that. I long wanted to leave a pile of poems at the checkout at ShopRite. And I would look at the women who also were in line with me, and in those days they were... uh, gee, almost all women, and wonder uh, which of my poems they might feel welcome to. And if it had a fancy weird word near the beginning, eh, not so much. So I tried to leave out the fancy weird words, but the trouble was I was in love with those words. And (laughs) they were like magic spells. And I, uh, I, I've, studied languages um, because I love them so much. I'm not good at them, uh, and I don't know semantics or semiotics or anything like that, but um, I love those words. So when I'm reading that, I see, uh-oh, gastrocnemius is coming. <laughs> Get ready. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and again, having experienced myself as uh, uh, not confident, but weird, and partly not confident because of being weird, but then developing a taste for the weirdness, 
And you know, once we find friends, once we find close friends, they love us for our weirdness as much as our mm-hmm. not weirdness. Mm-hmm. And so there's this woman of, oh, I don't know, 65, whatever I was then, lying on the floor, watching her legs wave in the air. Um, it's normal, and it's fun. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to, this... I wanted to come to something a little more serious now. Um, I'm quite quite a bit more serious now. Um, uh, oh, I was with Jericho Brown two days ago. I saw you. Oh, you yeah, did. That was yeah. great. Yeah. And he said at one point something about uh, rape. He said, "You know, we don't. We're not really talking about rape." And this is yeah. a poem that talks about rape. Good. And, um, Thank you. Yeah, ode with a silence in it. I never read this poem at readings because I feel mean and, and, and mm. you know, not mean, but, but I, it meant so much to me to be able to write this poem, mm. so much that it has some space in it. It's, my poems n- never have space in them anymore, almost never, um, but this has one. Ode with a silence in it. Pink sky in the morning, a girl's sky. Slowly the trees become visible and the spaces between them. Imagine being able to walk into the woods without fear. If my classmate had not been taken and leave a silence here and murdered and buried in the woods near our houses, would I be as afraid? Rape is rape which alters where it alteration finds and bends with the remover to remove. Legitimate rape, the politician said. Rape born to rape's legal parents. Parent rape, family rape, date rape, gang rape, priest and rabbi rape, coach rape, Rape of 80-year-olds, 8-year-olds, 8-month-olds, morning rape, noon rape, night rape, spring rape, summer rape, fall rape, winter rape, army rape, navy rape, red sky in the morning, air force rape, marines rape, world rape, how many? Each minute, the end of the world, rape. The first, rape. Do all primates rape? Is all ape sex between consenting apes? Do dogs rape? Do spiders rape? Sex between the parts of a flower has such tenderness. The honeybee dusting the dust thou take from another, from anther to pistol. Where else but with us the policy of rape, of rape pregnancy, and rape birth? What is the sweetest word? Is consent the sweetest word on earth? It has a con in it, a girl's own spiral universe. Thank you. Is consent the sweetest word? (laughs) I'm glad I wrote that.
mm. and reading it. I'm reading it for others as well as myself. And, um, you know, when I say for others, I mean here and around the earth now and around the earth for the whole past of when there were animals who could do that. Mm. Yeah. And you said to me a little earlier when we were speaking about uh, sons that um, if you if you wrote that again, you might note how much um, how much how much privilege. Uh, yeah. I think that's an overused yeah. word. I mean, we need we need many words to talk about what we're talking about with that word. But yeah. right, and 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 about him being white. And you do have this ode to my whiteness. Yes. In in this book, which I think is very an important poem. Thank you. I would not have this ode were it not for. The brilliant poet Evie Shockley's book, The New Black, and in that book, I don't remember if it's Poem to My Blackness or Ode to My Blackness, but this poem is after Evie Shockley. Ode to My Whiteness. You were invisible to me. You went without saying. You were my weapon secret from myself. Whatever I got, you helped get it for me. You were my ignorance. Because of you, I was not innocent. I did not see that. You were my blinding light. My dreams had a blank area in the center, taking up most of the screen they played on in my sleep, a blazing circle that blanked out the core of the scene. I thought it was my mother's violence but it was you, too. You, the unseen fat which fed me in the wilderness. You, my Masonic handshake. You, my stealth. You, my drone. You, my collaborator. You, my magician's cloak of steam. You, my dissembler. You, mine. I, yours, irisless eyeball. You, my blindness inspiration of my helpless act, you my silence, Evie's blackness a dancer, you another, the two of you moving together. Mm. Which I think there's, um, you know, the, this matter of whiteness is just one of these huge reckonings we have to have. And yeah. many conversations. And uh, actually, I think it's, I don't know that there's other poetry like this. So thank you for thank that you. contribution to our reckoning. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And I wondered if we could finish with a shorter, where is it? Ninety-four. Your ode to dirt. Ah, <laughs> yes. Um, I think I don't know why. I just thought this would be a lovely way to end. It's a little shorter poem, and and it's kind of about everything. Really. Thank you. And it was one of the poems in this book, not written early on in the ode writing. Uh, I think for every book that comes out of mine, there's ten times as many poems or five times as many that didn't make the grade. And 
there are early ones and late ones, and it took me so long. I couldn't bear to believe that the earth could die. I just couldn't bear to believe it, so I didn't until two weeks ago or whenever it was. That certainly changed my life. I'm grateful that I'm more in touch with the truth than I had been. But this poem showed a little consciousness of that. Ode to Dirt. Dear Dirt, I am sorry I slighted you. I thought you were only the background for the leading characters, the plants and animals and human animals. It's as if I had loved only the stars and not the sky which gave them space in which to shine. Subtle, various, sensitive. You are the skin of our terrain. You're our democracy. When I understood I had never honored you as a living equal, I was ashamed of myself, as if I had not recognized a character who looked so different from me. But now I can see us all made of the same basic materials, cousins of that first exploding from nothing, in our intricate equation together, oh, dirt, Help us find ways to serve your life, you who have brought us forth and fed us, and who at the end will take us in and rotate with us and wobble and orbit. Thank you. Thank you, Sharon. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you. <laughs>